So tonight we are going to take a look at uh, chapter 14 of the book of Romans and part of chapter 15. And I think these two chapters are probably going to be the most instrumental in helping us to understand what Paul is trying to do in this letter. So when you read chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13, what you're going to find is a couple of terms that are introduced that I think are instrumental in what the problem is in the Roman house churches. Uh, and the two terms are strong and weak. Now that has caused a lot of discussion among Bible scholars as to who he's talking about, who is the strong, who is the weak, but it is key if they are going to be able to get along as siblings in God's family. And so Paul in the latter part of the book of Romans chapters 12 through 16 is what I want to call a lived theology, how theology that is only up in the brain in terms of knowledge um, how is it supposed to be used? Well, that's what chapters 12 through 16 is all about. So a lived theology centers on how two groups of people get along in the Roman house churches. But the key question that we're going to look at tonight is who are these two groups and what is the temptation on each side of these two groups that brings about some of the chaos that is in the potential uh, divisions that are found in the Roman house churches. So in chapters 14, 1 through 15, 13, I think uh, after I've read through this again this week, I really think if you get a good handle on this section, I think you will begin to dial in to a better understanding of why Paul wrote Romans. I think it'll become very clear. So let's get started. So who are the strong and the weak? Well, there's a few options that have been thrown around uh, over the course of the years. And usually it breaks down into uh, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians are the two groups that can't get along. Before we get there, though, um, it has been raised by some scholars to say maybe these are more literary groups than they are literal groups. And what I mean by that is the, if they are literary groups, maybe Paul doesn't have specific people in mind. Maybe there are some strong Jewish believers and strong Gentile believers, some weak Gentile believers and some weak Jewish believers. But as I put here on this slide, the length of this section, I think, suggests that it's something more than a literary figure of speech describing whoever it may be that could fit into the weak and the strong categories. I think the pure length of this section suggests that he has specific individuals in mind or specific types of individuals in mind. So to define this group, um, I think comes back to understanding Paul's mission. And we talked about that last week to establish a base in Rome, to visit the house churches there, 
to raise money for the poor uh, saints in Jerusalem, and then a funding of his trip on to Spain. So if that is his ultimate goal, his ob uh, objective, or maybe we might say his agenda here, is to get these two groups to be harmonious, to treat each other as siblings, so that his own personal interest in it might be he has a better chance of sending a substantial gift back to the Jerusalem church, as well as have a solid base to move on beyond Rome into Spain. Now, when you look at these two options here, the other factor here is not just Jew and Gentile, but sometimes it comes into the discussion, are these individuals believers or are some of them unbelievers? So a third option that has been suggested is believing Gentiles, some believing Jews, but some non-believing Jews. And one of the reasons that um, Paul gets very amped up about this is because if there is a group that hasn't trusted Christ, then uh, this is possibly going to get in the way of their coming to Jesus as their Messiah. So does that all that make sense? Uh, can I clarify anything? Okay, so that's kind of the, the backdrop to it. Now we'll take a look at a common problem Paul had in his mission, not just in this Roman setting, but all through the book of Acts. When you read the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, one of the things that you're going to find is there always was a headbutting between uh, Jewish believers and potential Gentile believers. So what would often happen is there was a group, for a lack of a better term, they were nicknamed the Judaizers, that would often follow, uh, follow Paul around on his missionary journeys. And they would insist as Jewish believers that not only should um, a person trust Christ, it's not as though they shouldn't trust Christ, but they also needed to keep the law as well. And what we find is that is the basis for Paul's letter to the Galatians. When you read the book of Galatians, you're going to see that topic come up over and over and over again. And that is a group of Jewish people that have trusted Christ as Messiah, but they don't want to let go of Torah observance. So one of the missions that Paul is on is to convince these Jewish believers uh, or these Jewish harassers in some case um, to accept the Gentiles for who they are. And if you remember the book of Acts, after Paul's first missionary journey, he has to clarify that the church in Jerusalem is behind his mission. So it's often called the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where he call, calls together uh, all the bigwigs in the uh, church at that time, the leaders, and they clarify, do the Gentiles need to become Jews before they can be followers of Christ? And the answer to that is no. And what we find is that even in the Jerusalem Council, 
the advice of Jesus's half-brother James is be sensitive to the Jewish people that still are Torah observant. Um, don't eat meat um, uh, uh, strangled or uh, blood that is intermingled with meat, uh, those type of things, because it would be truly offensive to the Jewish uh, populace. One thing, though, in Galatians 3.28, and I think this is a message Paul probably gives to every church that he establishes. In Galatians 3.28, he reminds us that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. So he takes a lot of the social order and he says these normal divisions within the society and that's found in the Roman Empire, we're seeing Jesus break those down. No longer are males more important than females, uh, free men being more important than slave, um, and Jews being more important than Gentiles. All are one in Christ. And so in various places in the New Testament, he will use the body metaphor. Christ is the head and his church is his body. And this body is made up of all kinds of different people, uh, ethnicity-wise, as well as gender-wise, and other things as well. So it seems as though the problem that's in Rome is a problem that has occurred again and again uh, in Paul's travels. So uh, any thoughts or questions that you have on that? Okay, now, if you have your Bible, turn open to chapter 14, and we're going to start diving into a few verses. This is a lengthy text, but uh, we can tease out or pull out some threads here that I think will clarify what Paul is at, uh, getting at. So look at verse 1. Off the top, he says, except the one who is weak in faith without quarreling, over disputable matters. So the disputable matters is what's in question here. And as you read in the verses that follow, you begin to see what those disputable matters are. It relates to two things, primary, primarily the dietary laws of the Jews and the Sabbath. Uh, what day is the holy day to worship? So notice it says in verse two, it says one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So if I had a pencil, if I were you and I had a pen pencil, here's what I would circle. Disputable matters, and then in verse 3, one group must not treat the other with contempt. I would circle the word contempt. And then the third thing I would circle here is the one who does not eat everything must not judge. So I would circle disputable matters, uh, contempt, and judge. That's the heart of the problem here. 
So the problem is primarily related to the dietary laws that are found in uh, the Torah. Um, so Torah, as you know, is part of the core identity of the Jewish people. It's given to them, at least in part, on Mount Sinai after they're delivered out of Egypt. And what we find is there's a lot more that's added in the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus is where we find the dietary laws. These dietary laws don't make a lot of sense to those of us who live in the 21st century. Uh, we don't understand why there would be restrictions on this other than uh, potentially there are some beliefs uh, that some animals are clean and some are unclean. Now, that's a cultural thing back uh, in the days when the Torah is given. You'll remember when Peter has a vision in the book of Acts of animals on a sheet that is coming down from heaven, and he is told to eat. And uh, Peter says, no, no, I'm a Torah observing Jew. I'm not going to eat anything that is unclean. And um, the message comes to him, do not call unclean what God calls clean. Now, there's a subtle hidden message in that, and that is the clean being Jews, the unclean being Gentiles. Don't call unclean what God calls clean. Uh, that is, God's opening up uh, his, his uh, good news to the Gentile world. So here we find um, this core identity uh, to the Jewish people. That, that is Torah observance. But here's the other problem. The problem is they think they have God on their side. Why is that? Because the Torah is a part of the Holy Scriptures. They have the Holy Scriptures. And that's why early in the book of Romans, as we will see, um, it, and it'll make sense when we get in chapters one through three, what we're going to see is Paul will pull that rug out from under them because he says, okay, yeah, you have the scriptures, but yet you're still guilty. <laughs> All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems as though observing the Torah is what's shaping the identity of those that Paul is going to call weak. Now, notice Paul puts himself on the strong side. Verse one, except the one who is weak, uh, whose faith is weak, uh, without quarreling over disputable matters. And he will then uh, go on and uh, he begins to define himself as one who's gotten over this obsession with the Torah, but not everyone can. And as a result, there's going to be some judgment on one side and some contempt on the other. So um, having said that, here's a problem that we often find even in the church today. Those who have the right scripture verses are the ones that believe they are in the right. So here the Jews believe they're in the right because they have the scripture behind it, even though God's providential uh, work has changed the dynamics of what he is doing to allow the Gentiles to be a part. Thoughts there? Okay. 
Now, in order to identify the weak and the strong, you almost have to do a cross study over in 1 Corinthians. This same topic takes up chapters 8 through 10 in 1 Corinthians, but there's a little bit of extra information. And the extra information that's not told here in Romans 14 and 15 is the uh, meat that has been sacrificed to idols. You'll see that in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. And so one group says it's okay to go to the marketplace and buy meat uh, that has been offered in dedication to a, a false god. And others said, no, 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 that's not going to touch my lips. So that will help make sense of verse two here in Romans 14. It says one person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. You see that? It's not whether it's kosher or unkosher uh, meat. It, it is, here is a group of people that feels that what is being put before them as options for dinner uh, is not kosher. So they elect like Daniel, did so uh, long ago to eat only vegetables. So you remember the story of Daniel. He and his three friends are taken to Babylon and he's brought into the king's court. And what we find is that they're going to give him the best of the best, but he refused to eat except vegetables. And there was kind of a test that was set up after a certain amount of time. If he looked weaker because he was not eating meat, uh, then there would be a problem. But actually, he actually turned out to be stronger. Um, and, uh, and so the eating of vegetables uh, was seen as acceptable for Daniel and his friends. So here, I think maybe the way to define this is the weak want kosher food, but the strong, which would probably be the Gentiles, have no problem with kosher or non-kosher food. So even today, Torah-observing Orthodox Jewish people will go to Heinen's or some other grocery store, and they're going to look for a symbol on a lot of their packaging of food. And you'll see the letter kof in Hebrew on the package, um, and it, it signifies kosher. The, this has somehow been um, dedicated or blessed by the rabbi and is acceptable for Jewish consumption. If it doesn't have that symbol on it, it possibly could have been uh, non-kosher food. Uh, and there's a complex uh, uh, description of what makes things kosher or non-kosher and that type of thing. And I am not an expert on that. So I don't, I can't even really define it, but uh, it's there. So look for it. The next time you're in the grocery store, look for the packaging. And if you'll see a Hebrew letter on it, uh, kind of like a backward C, um, it, it will represent kosher food. So, um, here, the problem is, now what do you do in a house church? 
what do you do when you have Torah observing Jews and non-Torah observing Gentiles and you want to have a love feast? Remember, that's a big deal in First Corinthians. Um, you know, they're, they separate, they're divided even around the Lord's table. And First Corinthians 11 tells us there's a group over here that has a lot to eat. And there's another group that doesn't have a whole lot to eat. And that's very close right after he's talked about uh, this uh, meat that has been offered to idols in chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians. So it might be that the divisiveness in the Corinthian church is around these same matters as well. What we don't have here in Romans is the definitive element that you find in 1 Corinthians that the, the element is meat that has been offered to idols. And how could someone who calls himself a follower of Christ uh, choose to consume meat that has been offered idols? So Jewish people that are real strict in those house churches will say, I know how I'm going to prevent violating the Torah is I'm only gonna eat vegetables. I'm not going to eat any meat at all. Okay, so does that make sense, everybody? Okay. So the heart of this, though, is more than meat. It's ethnicity, it's identity, it's values. So when you think about who we define ourselves are, uh, who we are, and when we walk into a room, we begin to size up our identity. And if there are other people in the room that share that same identity. So what you'll find is that even people that are church shopping, they come into a facility and the first thing that they begin to ask themselves, is there anybody here like me? Okay. So the best way to, to understand this is you're going to go to a sports bar. And this sports bar has dozens of TVs. All of them have different NFL games on. And there's cheering that's going on. And you walk into that sports bar. And where are you going to sit? You're going to look for the identifying markers that tell you that these are your people. It might be a uniform, somebody's wearing a Browns uniform, or something has happened on the TV and they're cheering for it or they're booing about it. You go, oh, they're cheering for the Browns uh, or they're booing the Browns. They're not my people, these are my people. So what, you've, what you have here at the heart of all of this is more than meat, and more than vegetables, it's about identity. And it's who I identify with, it's uh, who I feel comfortable with, it's who I accept, and who, it's who I reject. That makes sense? Any thoughts? Okay. So some of the Jewish followers of Jesus are observing this dietary uh, menu of vegetables only. However, in some of the cross-references 
what you're going to see is that it's not just food, it's also Sabbath observance. Look down at verse five here in Romans 14, and that's where it's introduced. It says, one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. So each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. One person considers one day more sacred than another, every, everybody else considers every day alike. That has to do with Sabbath observance. So the Jewish um, Torah observers still recognize that Sabbath was an important element of a delivered people. They come out of Egypt. God tells them, you'll work six days, and on the seventh day, you will rest. Okay? So part of the strong and part of the weak is not just diet, but it's also which day is, is the holy day. And then he goes on, he says in verse six, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so for, to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. And then he says the last line there. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. So he's going to talk about how Christ died for both groups, and that will come early in the book of Romans as well. But the heart of it is found in what's going on there. And uh, both of uh, these groups um, think that the position that they're taking is convincing. So the Gentile goes, well, okay, maybe the Torah served you well at one time, but we're not Jews. So what's the big deal where Jews go, oh, this has been a part of our conscience. It's been part of our conviction uh, as a people for hundreds and hundreds of years. So why would we abandon it? So the strong have a liberation from Torah observance. The weak still want to stay faithful to it. Okay, does that make sense? So now notice what it says in verses three and four. Go back up to verses three and four. I told you to kind of circle this here. So the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. So we see the strong despising the weak and saying, well, you guys, you're just holy the holier than thou you are people that um just you're too stiff you're too rigid and there's this element here of contempt on the other side the weak are looking and they're judging every one of these that's eating a meat um possibly offered to idols or at least uh non-kosher meat and what we find is they're judging them. How can they call themselves uh, followers of God? This is the same problem that we find in churches all around the world. Two groups of people, probably more than that, but at least two groups of people, one throwing contempt on another, the other judging. And that causes a lot of division. 
that also spills over into politics too. And you see that when you turn the news on between the two parties in our own country, contempt and judgment, okay? Those two things just are daily when you turn on uh, cable news, but it's found everywhere. It's found in schools, it's found on the job, you know, everywhere you'll see these type of things happen. Any thoughts there? So here, finally, we come to what I think is a good working definition of the weak and the strong. The weak are Jewish believers. And are there some unbelieving believers in there? Possibly. But I don't think that's the main focus. The weak are Jewish believers who are in the stream of God's election because they've been God's people for thousands of years. They know the Torah law and they practice it, but they sit in judgment on Gentiles. The strong, only not strong in a values sense, but strong in the topic sense of, hey, we feel we have the freedom to eat and, and, and worship as we want. The strong are probably predominantly Gentiles who believe that Jesus is Messiah, but they are, they're not going to observe the Torah and they have a condescending or despising attitude to, toward the Jewish um, uh, believers that are, are part of the house churches there. So this is basically chapter 14. When you read the rest of chapter 14, what you're going to see is he brings it up again. In verse 13, he says, let's stop passing judgment on one another. So, there is this problem that's taking place. And I think Paul's, um, I think Paul's approach on it is found in verse 10. He says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. In other words, none of us have, have a unblemished record. I mean, we all have our issues. There's been times I've cast judgment. There's been times that I've thrown contempt. So this, these things then are a part of a self-evaluation of who we think we are versus who we really are. And then he says this in verse 14. Here's his other conviction. We're all going to stand before God. And then verse 14, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, he's just created himself some enemies there. Because by making that statement, he believes that you have moved on from Torah observance. But those that are still Torah observers would hear that, and they probably would at least initially reject that comment from Paul. And what we find is there's probably pushback against that as well. So have you ever noticed how in a lot of churches, they love to argue? They love to argue. It's kind of part of the DNA. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with we're right, you're wrong. A lot of it has personality 
resistance to it. And Paul here makes a statement that is quite gutsy, I think, but it's the heating. It's quite gutsy of his. And what we find though is there is pushback. One of the things that you find in first and second Corinthians, especially second Corinthians, is he has to defend his apostleship. So he will make a big case saying, I really was called by the Lord to be an apostle to the Gentiles, even though there were those that were saying he shouldn't be counted among the apostles. And one reason I think is because of these type of comments here. Comments? Okay. So in chapter 15, go over to chapter 15 now, he's going to address what he calls the strong. And as he addresses the strong, notice what he says. He tells them to throw the contempt away. Verse one, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. So here we see that the strong, being Gentiles, probably consider themselves privileged. We've been here all along. You Jews were kicked out by Claudius, and now you've been allowed to come back into Rome, and you want to take over, and you want to dictate how things should be run. And the strong would, is pushing back and saying, no, we'll accept you back into the house churches, but we're calling it. We're making the call here. And now Paul is going to address the strong specifically in the thick of this social reality that he finds himself. So I've given to you on this slide here, uh, the contemporary English Bible translation of verse one of chapter 15. Here's the way they translate it. I think, they're, I think they, they are spot on with this translation. We who are powerful need to be patient with the weakness of those who don't have power. Now that's different than the way it's translated here in the NIV. So in the NIV, it says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I don't know, how would you take that phrase, the failings of the weak? Have they really failed or it's just a matter of that's the way that they, that's a part of their DNA is Torah observance. I'm not sure that they have failed in any way, but it's this idea that um, if they are demanding others to conform to their own wiring, then what we find is you have a power struggle that is in place. And I think the contemporary English Bible translation picks up on that. And, and it's, it's trying to say, we who are powerful, the strong Gentile component of the Roman church ought to be patient not throw contempt 
but ought to be patient with those who don't have that same position. They've just made their way back into Rome. Accept them. And we should, verse 2, please our neighbors for their good so that they will be built up. Then he uses Christ as the example. For even Christ did not please himself, uh, but as it is written. Then he dips in uh, to the Old Testament. Uh, this comes out of Psalm 69. And he says, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So it's kind of interesting what Paul does. He does a little bit of Bible uh, trivia there and goes back and pulls out an Old Testament quote. And then he says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. I think he just pulls a verse out of thin air. And what he does is he uses it as a way of saying, hey, you remember all the scriptures that have come before? They're all given for our purpose, to be edified and grow and, and that type of thing. And um, then he talks about oneness. Verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he addresses the strong here, and he uses two terms here that I haven't mentioned, but it's the same terms as found in chapter 14 as well. Now notice the term strong, dunatoi, and weak, adunatoi. So uh, it's the same word, one being given a prefix, which is the opposite. What we know in cultural studies is these are status terms that's not only used in the church, but it's used in the Roman world where status is a big deal. There are people that are dunatoi, they're strong, they're privileged, they are of high status. And then there are adunatoi, those that are weak, those that are slaves, those that are servants. And you have a caste system in the Roman Empire between the strong and the weak. And Paul is playing in these two chapters off of that social structure. So notice here in verse one, Paul is, uh, is considering himself one who is strong. Verse one, we who are strong. You notice he casts himself into the side of the, uh, the people that have privilege and power. Why do I say that? Remember Paul, is not only highly educated, he's not only a rabbi, he's not only been mentored by Gamaliel, but he also has Roman citizenship as well. So all of this would put him into an upper status in the Roman structure, whereas many that he might be addressing might be considered on the lower status within the Roman structure. So while he considers himself strong, he himself is going to be one that says that's not, that doesn't have any place here in the body of Christ. We should be like Christ who did not even consider himself as one higher than another. 
And he probably has in the back of his mind that passage that he gave in Philippians, um, where you have the kenosis passage in chapter three, where he empties himself of his position and his power uh, for the sake of those that he has come to save. So um, what matters most here to Paul is his mission to spread the gospel about Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. And to do so, he needs a unified family. He needs Jews and Gentiles to treat each other as siblings in, the, in God's family. Does that make, does that make sense? Any thoughts or questions? Now, having said that, for you, yeah, go ahead. The, uh, the, the you know the Jewish people back then, like they do today, I think, you know, have different levels of you know religious in, in terms of you know the Orthodox versus the yeah. more you know. And so back then, well, how would you classify? Because, I mean, I, I think this difference could become, you know, really exacerbated if you're talking about Jews who were really serious, you know, um, Orthodox type Jews that still believe in Jesus versus Jews that were much more watered, I don't want to say watered, you know, kind of diluted in some sense. Yeah. Like, like, like today, when you have, you know, very fundamental type of, of, of Jewish people, Orthodox, and you have, you know, the other um what do you, yeah. what do you call them? More, uh, liberal. more liberal Jews. Yeah, I. Uh, I well, think how would you classify these folks? Because again, I could see if they were more orthodox, the, the friction being even greater than if they were more liberal. If you see what I'm saying? I think you're right. I think it'd be much more complex. That's for sure. Um, I think that um, in light of what we read in the narratives in the Book of Acts, that at least some part of uh, the Jews were very, very strongly committed to Torah observance, to uh, circumcision, Sabbath, dietary laws, all that type of thing. Uh, So I think, um, I do think that you have an element that whatever term you want to use, Orthodox or, or, you know, Reformed or whatever uh, term we want to use, is what got them in trouble in the first place. So to go back into to history, Claudius, the Roman emperor, kicks all the Jews out of Rome for a period of time. And I think this probably plays into that. Um, they were, in their cultural melu, uh, they were very strict in comparison, obviously, to the rest of the Roman world. And uh, there were people that just got tired of it, I think. And they said, well, you know, then get out. If, uh, you know, if you can't accept the culture that we have here in Rome, then, you know, just go back to where you came from, that type of thing. So I do think there's a strong presence there. Now, do I think all of them are that uh, zealous? No, probably not. But there is that element. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good question. Any other thoughts? So interspersed here is, this is kind of chewing the cut again, um, 
interspersed in chapter 14 and 15 is this idea of the way peace will come about among these two groups is what, and this is a made up word, is both willing to be formed by Christ or Christ of formity. And what we find is that this Christ deformity is the process of growth where the, both groups are being more conformed to the image of Christ and are willing to lay down their rights for the betterment of the other people. And, um, and I think that's what you see here where um, in verse eight of chapter 15, it says, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So you'll notice there he says, Christ has become a servant. That's what I want you to become as well. And, and for the sake of his ongoing mission to Gentiles, and that's why he will string together in verses 9 uh, all the way down through verse 12, if you look, if you have a study Bible and you're looking at verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, they are all quotations from different parts of the Old Testament. So what he does is he kind of goes back into his quiver and pulls out some arrows from the Old Testament as a way of saying, this is what God wanted the Jews to do all along, is to become a servant to the Gentiles, to bring them into faith. Uh one of the problems in the Old Testament was the Jews always, even though they were a conquered people, they always kind of had a, an air of superiority. We are the ones that worship the true God. We are the ones that have the Torah, that type of thing. So um, here he's talking about laying all that down for the sake of being a servant. And that's the key. And that is the way to bring uh, to 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 start to bring healing to these two groups, and and begin to harmonize together, and ultimately have peace. So, thoughts there. Okay, I have now. This is not in Romans fourteen and fifteen, but these are kind of a couple of slides uh, that are applicable, I think, to what we look at here. Now, aside from the reason Paul wrote Romans, just put that aside for a moment. One of the things that I think we can take away from chapters 14 and 15 is the gravity of gray areas. Now, what I mean by that is um, some people consider things right or wrong and there's no gray area. You know, some people like that, everything's kind of black and white. And the gravity of gray areas are the areas that other people do not have convictions about certain things that other people do. And to do life in community uh, within church or really within any community for that matter is how you navigate your way through the culture you find yourself in. So there is particular ways that you have to adapt to the culture you find yourself in. So it comes second nature 
to those of us who are born and raised in Ohio. That's our, that's the air that we breathe. We know how to navigate it. But if you were to move to New England, or if you were to move to Alabama or Mississippi, or you were to move out West, there is a different subculture that you're gonna to have to learn how to navigate if you're gonna get along with the people that are there. That is even more um, amplified when you move cross-culturally and you are an individual that is an American that's trying to live in Europe or Africa or China or whatever, you have to understand. And this I think incidentally is one of the issues that missionaries get into trouble with. They don't honor and respect the culture that they go into. And they think that part of the gospel is making uh, not only converts to Christ, but making people American in culture as well. And so that, that, that can be a real difficulty. But what we find here is it's usually cultural gray areas that produce different reactions uh, to different people. So when different individuals go into a culture that is different than theirs, they don't understand why people do some of the things that they do. They may, these individuals have reasons why they do things the way they do. We just don't understand it usually. And we are tempted, I think, at times to do what's happening in Romans 5, I mean, Romans 14 and 15 here. And that is either hold people uh, in contempt or judge them. Those two things usually are in play here. So while Paul is introducing these two terms, weaker and stronger, in every community, you have weaker and stronger members that relate to the cultural participation of that particular subculture that you find yourself in. That makes sense? So the gray areas that are not matters of morality, but they are matters of personal decision, uh, many times people will make judgment on uh, other people with those things. Sometimes it's the use of alcohol. Sometimes it's the use of tobacco. Sometimes uh, it's other uh, things, cultural things um, that people participate in that you know, uh, brings immediate judgment from one group upon another, okay? So those are the areas that sometimes create a lot of division. Now, we all have to kind of find our way between the two extremes. One extreme being legalism and the other extreme being liberty. Legalism is where every T is crossed, every I is dotted. There's always only one way to do something. Liberty is, I don't care if this hurts other people in the process, I'm free to do what I want to do. Both extremes can be equally damaging and both extremes can be equally offensive to other people. There is a tendency within churches, usually, to swing toward legalism. And 
legalism sometimes wants to crowd out the gray areas and um, the weaker position, um, even though they're weaker because they, they have these convictions that they judge other people by, actually, here's the, here's the ir irony of it. Usually they portray themselves as the stronger. Okay, so you have weaker people that won't do certain things, um, but they feel they're stronger because they don't do them, or at least more spiritual. <laughs> so that's that's one of the one of the things that often happens within a church setting. Um, and just like the temptation there might be in Romans fourteen and fifteen to dip into, but we have the scriptures. So we have the right to do it. There is that temptation also in, in churches as well. Um, here's the problem. And I think this is the Galatian uh, epistle in a nutshell. Well, if you're still going to live by the Torah, why do you need Jesus? <laughs> if you're going to try to live by a list of rules rather than relationship with God and each other, then why do you need Jesus? So to embrace everything, though, is not a stronger position. Because in liberty, there can be a lot of mistakes that are made that can lead to problems uh, and so forth. So again, I think there are two wide swings um, from um, kind of that middle ground. But any thoughts there? Now, one last thing that I have. Last slide. Notice here this line that I've drawn. We often think from weak to strong as kind of a continuum, the weak being on one side, the strong being on the other. All right. That's kind of how we think, you know. Um, probably legalism can be weak and liberty can be weak. So maybe we shouldn't think of it as one line from weak to strong. We should probably think of it as extremes, legalism on one extreme, liberty on the other. And in the middle is people that are trying to uh, have faith and be accepting of other people that are not necessarily where they're at. They might be to their right, they might be to their left in terms of legalism or liberty. So one of the things that we have done in Romans 14 and 15 tonight is define the weaker being people that won't eat certain meat. They, they, they're stuck to the Torah. But I, I think in practical application, it would be easy to do that. Um, what, what they the way Paul addresses this in Romans. I think it's probably better to understand that weakness and strength is not necessarily one group or the other. You might have a mixture of both in either group. And what you have is this weakness can be on either extreme. And to follow Christ is to kind of be able to balance that that at least attempt to get along with both sides. 
And boy, that's the most difficult position of all, isn't it? To kind of walk down the middle of love, trying to love both people that might be to the far extreme. But I think that's what uh, Paul is doing. One last verse, verse 15, uh, verse 14 of chapter 15. Paul says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now that's where he starts to get into what his long-term plans are um, for going to Spain. But you'll notice he says, I am convinced that goodness is in both, both elements, the weak and the strong. So when we look at this here, this middle ground, do we look for the good things on both sides of the extremes? And my, my tendency is to think not as often as we should, probably. So here's just some practical applications, four of them. Accept others in their area of weakness and be willing to lay down freedoms for their benefit. Number two, shut up about gray areas as absolutes for everyone. Three, submit our choices to Christ's judgment because we will appear before him. And don't infringe our choices upon other people. So that's kind of how I wrap up this, you know, this section of Romans. But you have questions, you have thoughts, you have contributions of insight that you want to make. You know, I, I think, you know, one of the issues is that from the perspective of the Jewish people, I mean, if you, like if today, if we're talking about, you know, issues about drinking or tobacco or going to movies or whatever, you know, 40 years ago, mm -hmm. probably not so much anymore. Yeah. But um, those are subjective in a sense, cultural yeah. and subjective. Right. And, and although people can connect them back to some scripture, I'm sure that's where they originated. But you know, to the Jewish people, those were legitimate. The, the the issues they had were were in some sense legitimate Bible Torah based, mm -hmm. you know, behaviors. You know, and 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 rules and requirements of their of not just their culture but their religion mm -hmm. in some sense. Even, you know, even though they were Christians, they still felt that that Torah in the Old Testament was still binding to them. Right. So it's 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 it's, it's a bit more complicated than I think. Just sort of the what we think of today as, you know, um, legalism. legalism versus not legalism or, or, or whatever you want to call it. I, I think it's much more complicated. I think you're right on on target there. I, and I think even simplifying it is not is probably not a good thing to do. I, I think you have to recognize the complexities, and um, you know, and not shy away from the fact that not everything has an easy answer to it so i think the non you know the non-jewish people you know ideally had to just accept the fact that that was part of the religious culture and and and, and deal with it in that way rather than try to i mean it gets complicated gets complicated and vice versa to some extent yeah, that's right that's yeah. exactly right yeah, yeah. So as he said, don't infringe our choices upon others is probably 
the bottom line that we need to keep in mind. Yeah, but you're right. I think that's true, bud, in every passage of scripture that you open up to. It's more complex than simplistic answers. It really is. And you have to accept that complexity and try to think through it. Other thoughts? Okay, well, we're going to, we will probably reference chapters 14 and 15 multiple times as we're trying to understand the other sections of Romans, because I think this here, in many sense, um, is foundational, if not the cornerstone, to understand the rest of the book. Kind of an off-the-wall question for you. We've had one Cleveland Brown in the news. Can you, keep your, can you keep your Cleveland Browns in Cleveland instead of running around <laughs> my neighborhood naked? Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Oh, man, oh, man. That was just up the street from you, wasn't yeah, it? I know. I know. <laughs> Shelly, you thought you saw him running down the street. No, I didn't. <laughs> I wouldn't she have couldn't, she, she couldn't get her iPhone out fast enough. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I saw that on the news, and, and I looked at Esty and Jason and goes, that's in their neighborhood. <laughs> that poor guy's in deep doo-doo. Oh, he probably won't play another down. No, he's had, he's had troubles in the past before. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's yeah. Sad. Unfortunately, <laughs> he was near a uh, daycare center. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, geez. I, you know, can you imagine the cop that was called out to that? And he's got a, he's got to confront uh, a defensive lineman. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> yeah, that, that poor policeman, he really got run over, too, if you saw a picture of him. Yeah. A naked like, defensive lineman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a good one to end on, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, you better take, the, you better take this off the recording. Yeah, I better clip that, hadn't I? Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, we'll see you later. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.